Good morning, afternoon or evening everybody and welcome to Pangolin, the conservation podcast. The show dedicated to exploring and amplifying the world's underappreciated conservation stories. The stories that inspire me, and I hope will inspire you too. I'm your host Jack Baker and today I am joined by Terence Fleming, the development manager of the Red Panda Network. Terence is here to discuss what a red panda is, its relationship with the giant panda, and how the Red Panda Network is working across the globe to raise awareness of and secure a future for these incredible little creatures. We also discuss how Terence first fell in love with the Red Panda, and what inspired him to want to work with the species. What is really special about this episode is it's actually the first of two episodes dedicated to the wonderful world of Red Pandas. While this week we are focusing on the work that goes on around the world to protect the species, Next week we will be back with Sonam Tashilama to discuss the Red Panda Network's in-situ conservation efforts. So make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on that. Now, without further ado, let's get started. Welcome back to the show. I am now joined by Terence Fleming, the development manager of the Red Panda Network. He is here to tell us all about this incredible species in the first of two parts. Um, you're here to tell us all about kind of the work that goes on with Red Panda Network kind of outside of Nepal. And then next week, we're going to have another episode dedicated to that kind of in situ conservation work. So I suppose the first thing I should say to you is thank you so much for your time and thank you for helping coordinate this kind of two episodes special. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is really fun. I love talking about red pandas and, and the work we do. So appreciate it. Perfect. Perfect. And I, I do too. So that is an excellent <laughs> combination. Um, and there's something that I think I, I want more people to know more about because I think we all go to the zoo or we all go to wherever we go to see the animals and you kind of think oh, they are very, they're very cute. And a lot of people, I think, think they're very cute, but it'll be nice to provide a bit more depth, I think, for people than perhaps they, they maybe have already. But before we get on to the kind of Red Panda chat, I wondered, I introduced you briefly there, but could you introduce yourself a bit a bit more in depth, a bit better probably for the listeners, tell them a little bit about who you are and, and what it is that you do? Yeah, absolutely. So I am the development manager uh, for the, the small US team we have here in Eugene, Oregon. Mm-hmm. And um, I essentially oversee development, marketing, communications, that sort of thing. Perfect. Yes, I did one because it was one of those things that I've never the the title development manager before when I was think, trying to write up questions, I was kind of thinking about how how do I <laughs> what exactly does that role contain? And that's for really confirmed that's I was like I did some googling and research and I was like it's, I'm now feeling very proud of myself. I said, yes, I I've nailed it, I think. Um uh, <laughs> in my understanding, <laughs> so that's perfect. Um but yes, that's really really interesting. I think obviously sets you up perfectly to to talk about the red pans if you're used to communicating all about them. So hopefully we'll get uh, a lot of good information uh, out there for people. And I guess the first question then has to be, we're talking all about them. They are kind of the stars of the show for this episode. Could you tell me a little bit about red pandas and kind of for anyone who's maybe not as familiar with them, introduce them to the, the listeners? Yeah, so red pandas are a... Uh small to medium-sized uh, mammal. They're a Himalayan species. They're a high-altitude species. They live at um, remarkably high elevations. They are an arboreal species, um, so they spend nearly all their time in trees. They, yeah, they are a very specialized mammal. Um, we can talk more about that. They are an, a rare and elusive like aside from being an endangered species, they are also rare and elusive just in their temperament and their behavior. And yeah, their um, their range is Nepal, which is where we mostly work. Um, we're also doing some work in Bhutan, which uh, they also have habitat in Bhutan, uh, China, India, and uh, Myanmar or Burma. So it used to be called, yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, there. Yes, an interesting. Yeah, very unique looking 
iconic species of of those kind of areas as well. They're the kind of the the flagship almost species. When you think of conservation in those areas, they're kind of one of the the main things that comes to mind. And so, yes, it's really fantastic to to get to chat about them and learn a, a little bit more. I was going to ask this in a second, but I think I'll I'll shift this question forward a little bit since we're talking about them. For the fans of Red Pandas out there who maybe knew a lot of what you, you said previously um, about them, if there's some kind of fact or interesting story or something about Red Pandas that people might not necessarily know, what is that? What would you tell them? Well, something, it's sort of an anecdote, but one of the, the way that I first discovered Red Pandas was when I was... Um, probably about 18, I was at the San Diego Zoo and I saw a sign for their red panda exhibit. And I was like, never heard of a red panda. What is that? Mm-hmm. And I walk up and I look into the enclosure and there is what I think is a toddler in a costume. <laughs> um, so like a, a child dressed as a red, whatever that was, a red panda, um, waddling around on you know, bipedally. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had no idea that that was an actual animal. And, um, so the first time I ever saw red panda, it was actually standing on its, on its hind legs, which, uh, is something they do. And it's, while it's really cute, it's actually, um, sometimes a sign of distress. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when you see like photos or videos of, of red pandas standing upright, they're actually, um, it, they're kind of using their body language to, uh, let you know how they're feeling, um, which is what, whether it's threatened or just anxious. Um, and so, and they're actually really, really good at communicating. They have some unique communicate communication, um, sort of styles where they will also, uh, what's called a huff quack. (laughs) And if you've never heard of a huff quack, it, it sounds exactly like, um, what you'd imagine a huff quack would sound like. Um, (laughs) So it's essentially, it sounds like a very upset duck that is, yeah, wanting to let you know that they're upset. And that's, um, so those are some, some of the ways that red pandas will communicate. Um, so yeah, I mean, they're, they're a very unique species. Uh, there's a lot of really interesting and, um, unique, uh, features. And, um, I mean, you know, some of the other things that people, may not know about them is they're obviously a very cute animal and everyone knows that um, that's widely known, but their cuteness actually um, has purpose. So the um, their facial structure actually helps them survive. So the um, what looks like reddish tear marks on their face, you know, similar to sort of like a raccoon is actually known to um, keep the sun out of their eyes. So as an arboreal species, red pandas are a little bit closer to the sun and they're a little bit more exposed to the sun. And especially when they're looking out for predators or food, it's important for them to be able to see that without, um, being, you know, blinded by the sun. So, uh, and then also (laughs) the white on their face also has purpose too. Um, the, uh, the white, can actually be luminescent. So it's, I, I don't know if I would say it's bioluminescent, but it, um, especially like the reflection from the moon, um, can actually help mothers find their cubs in the dark. So it, it actually, again, helps, um, their, their survival. That's, that's, uh, that's fantastic. I'm, I'm kind of sat there going, <laughs> I, this is new information to me. And I, I, I have worked in a zoo and talked about red pandas a lot. So that is actually, that's really, really interesting, actually. Yeah, there's, and there's a lot more I could say too. I mean, they're, yeah, they, they are one of the more unique species I've, I've ever learned about. So. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's the thing. I think providing more depth to something that perhaps people dis- not dismiss, but see in, on first instance and think, oh, that's cute. It's nice to know that it's it, there's more purpose and there's more depth there um, that hopefully exactly. people will grow yep. to appreciate. Um, yeah. yeah. And I suppose you kind of talked about it there a little bit, but I was going to ask when you kind of first formed a connection, realized you wanted to work kind of for with red pandas. But I, I suppose maybe was it kind of love at first sight when you saw them in the zoo that first time? Or was it did it take a, a few visits before you kind of decided this is this is what I want to do? When was the, the moment for you? Uh, well, I, that was sort of before, you know, I just graduated high school, so mm-hmm. I wasn't ready to uh, go save red pandas on a professional level, but I, I never forgot them. And I, when I saw the opportunity, I was like, Oh yeah, red pandas, because, um, they, 
were, you know, they're, they're still not, I mean, you know, that'll probably, that's starting to change and it'll probably change when the, the Pixar movie comes out tomorrow. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, after I saw them, I had never really seen the animal mentioned again until I saw that opportunity, which was, you know, probably 10 years later. So, yeah, um, no, it, it wasn't, it, it wasn't yet. I mean, it planted a seed definitely because I remember that was one of the, the species and the San Diego Zoo has a lot of awesome animals, but that was one that definitely stood out and stood up to make a bad joke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I can, I can imagine. Yeah. There, there's something that definitely leave an impression when you see that, especially when you're lucky enough to see them moving. I think there's a lot of people will walk past them and look up a tree and think, what is that small ball that's kind of up in the distance. But when you get to see them moving around a little bit more, yes, they're very quick, very, very easy to fall in love with. Um, very kind of quickly, and they do leave a, a an impression. Um, Definitely. And yes, I I completely forgotten that film was coming out tomorrow. And I was quite excited when I saw the trailer. I was quite intrigued to see kind of what that's going to be. It's for listeners. Um, who, for context, for listeners, we're talking. Is it Turning Red? I think the film's called is mm-hmm. coming out tomorrow or something. Yep. So if, I I don't know if I can endorse it, but I it it, it sounds. Interesting in theory. Don't if it's rubbish when it comes out. Don't blame it on me if you've watched <laughs> it. But it sounds intriguing at least. Uh, <laughs> Definitely. But yes, yes. I guess before we go down a movie tangent. Um, <laughs> yes, uh, that would be too easy for me to. I, yes. Well, real quick. Uh, yeah. Because we're talking about something that people may not know about this animal, which is mm. something that's really important, is that they are the only remaining species in their family. So. They are, um, they're in the, the Alertiae family and every other species that has been among the Alertiae family are, are now extinct. So they're the only remaining species. So, um, so there's literally no animal like them. Uh, I mean, you know, they're compared to raccoons, um, you know, they're compared to the, the weasel family. They, um, are obviously, uh, associated with giant pandas a lot. But um, they're not really related to any of those animals. I mean, you could probably argue that they're maybe most closely connected to weasel-like animals like skunks and and raccoons as well. But um, they are a very unique species. And um, so their their conservation is really important to, you know, the the sort of um, to our global biodiversity and our, 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 um, you know, global biodiversity like heritage. So. Mm-hmm. That's that's really interesting, actually, because yes, you would assume somewhere down the line they are quite closely related to their namesake, giant panda, or whatever it is. You'd think there was some kind of link there, but it's actually interesting that, in fact, no, no, not really. Um, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I, I, I just kidding. I, yeah, <laughs> um, I'll need to. I'm gonna have to fact check this and put it in, but I'm sure it was something. Was the red panda named first? Do you know that? I feel like it was the red panda actually was named prior to the giant panda and the giant panda has come along afterwards and stolen some of the thunder from it. I think that's true. I'm going to have to double check that, but I, I seem to remember when it came down to naming and things, they're kind of, the giant panda was linked to the red panda rather than the other way around, I think. Yeah, um, so the the red, you're exactly right. Yeah, the red panda was discovered about 50 years before the giant panda. Yes. So if there's there you go. If there's any kind of links there, it's not. <laughs> it's people trying to cling to them, not the other way around. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, and, and really, the, their their relationship makes sense because if you think about it, panda, essentially means um, bamboo eater, right? Like that's what it can be. That that that's where I think at least the words origins come from. So you know what they have in common is that they both love bamboo, and they're both very specialized animals. In that their diet is, you know, 90 plus percent bamboo, um, mm-hmm. which makes sense because uh, bamboo is, and, you know, they're, they're not the only species that that specializes in bamboo. There's also a lemur that specializes in bamboo. And I, I'm sure I'm sure you know more about this stuff than I do mm-hmm. doing your podcast and everything. But um, they you know, it's a plant that grows very abundantly. Um, there's a lot of different species and they, you know, they, they can kind of dominate an ecosystem and. Um, so, you know, essentially these animals have filled a niche, um, Mm -hmm. and, and have, have essentially evolved into being able to digest this plant, which is very difficult to, uh, to digest. Um, you know, red pandas only, they only are able to digest about 24% of what they eat, which is why they eat so much of it. And I'm sure giant pandas are similar. Um, Mm -hmm. so, you know, they fit this niche and 
became a very specialized animal um, in doing so because they're one of the few animals that can digest this plant um, and, you know, eat enough of it to, you know, sustain themselves. So, yeah, mm-hmm. that, that's probably where their their connection to giant pandas um, sort of began. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, actually. And it's it's something that just has got me thinking about the fact that I remember teaching um, kids about giant pandas. And it's just got me thinking about naming conventions because the um, obviously panda, the bamboo eater. But if in kind of where the giant panda is from, uh, giant panda in Chinese is dashing mao, which means big bear cat. So it's interesting to see how different perceptions and different worldviews and different kind of people who have discovered, quote unquote, discovered these animals um have named them or kind of the translated differently and i'd be really interested this it's a tangent that i'll have to go down in my own time because it probably leads to so many different uh, <laughs> other questions but it's an interesting kind of divergence there in naming and different things both i think well yeah yeah i don't mean to cut you off but you mentioned divergence and and the other sort of feature that they do share with giant pandas which is related to eating bamboo is that they have the uh pseudo thumb um, or, you know, the, the extra thumb is, is what some people like to call it. So they, they, they literally have this extra digit and, um, you know, it's believed to, I, I don't know if it, it's was originally, I don't know if it originally evolved to be used for this, but it essentially helps them to, uh, grip bamboo stems like, like giant pandas. So, but they, and they, red pandas will also use, um, their, their pseudo thumb to, uh, to help them climb as well. Mm-hmm. yes yes and that's something i actually to highlight arboreal for people because it's m- m- not a word that's thrown around by anyone outside of probably conservation and animal people arboreal means they're up trees a lot if you're kind of were wondering if you're a relatively new uh person to the animal world are they're up trees a lot so that yes makes sense that they would need all of that assistance to climb um and kind of get around um there there's been a red panda recently born at edinburgh zoo where i work and frequent very very often even when i'm not working and there's something about watching the little ones climb where it's they just have this confidence of they're kind of (laughs) you're kind of like you're very very high up but they they the parents tend to be a bit more kind of careful and the little ones are all over the place up down (laughs) round running kind of imagine a very excited dog running around your kind of garden except they're 20 30 40 feet up in the air which makes you slightly nervous to watch but it's it's fantastic and uh exceptionally cute and interesting so yes um yeah for anyone who was wondering arboreal they're up the trees a a lot um and i think something now that we kind of know a bit more about them i think you touched on it a while a little while ago um by mentioning kind of that they are endangered um and i think that's kind of part of the reason i was inspired to reach out to to you guys was that I think a lot of kind of charismatic animals people assume are fine because they're charismatic and they must get lots of support, which they do. They have charities like you supporting them. But that doesn't mean that they're they're safe and they're kind of fine and we can just ignore the kind of endangered and kind of threats to them. Um, And so that's kind of why I kind of feel they fall under this category that we we kind of look at, which is vaguely kind of underappreciated or misunderstood things because they are. They're exceptionally popular, yet still endangered. And I wondered, could you tell the listeners a little bit about why that might be and what kind of threats that that they do face? Yeah. So their main threat is habitat loss, uh, primarily deforestation. The uh, sort of a rising threat is is poaching and that that that's essentially exacerbating you know the impacts of, of habitat loss so yeah um there's a lot of human population growth in uh in their habitat areas so a lot of forests gets uh converted to you know agriculture you know residential rangeland and it's also fragmented and, and degraded by um you know, uh, human or, um, human activities such as, uh, um, herding and thing and things like that. So, mm-hmm. yes, yes. It's a, it's, it's a sad, but common theme, I think through when discussions of conservation is this kind of conflict of, yes, people needing more and more space and kind of not necessarily being able to, or, um, leaving the animals or the habitats that these animals need be. And yes, that of course, um, increases, the likelihood i suppose that they will come into contact with people and then be kind of um poached or whatever it is that happens to them after that yeah um, exactly mm-hmm. 
I suppose next week we're kind of, as I said at the start, we're having this kind of two-week discussion um, this week with you and then next week with Sonam about the kind of in-situ threats and kind of what you guys are doing to kind of prevent the kind of threats on the on the ground within Nepal and the other kind of habitats. But um, I think the question I have for you today is that obviously habitat loss and all of these things are very locally based. What is it that you do kind of globally, maybe removed from Nepal, from your position in the United States? What is it that you do to kind of help the protection of red pandas more widely than than just their their kind of native habitats? So globally, we uh, really try to educate people um, and and raise awareness. I mean, while they are growing in popularity, I'm still surprised um, by how many people I come in contact with that don't know about red pandas. Maybe they've heard mm-hmm. of them, um, but yeah, have no idea that they're endangered, really have no idea how unique and specialized they are and how important mm-hmm. they are to global biodiversity. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, so we have International Red Panda Day every year, and that's a really important day for red panda conservation, um, really just spreading the word about them and um, you know, uh, engaging people with our programs and getting involved and supporting our community-based conservation efforts. That's actually, that's, I mean, I suppose it's one of those things that when you are interested in animals and conservation, you're in this kind of bubble of, of, oh, of course people would know about red pandas. They must know about them everywhere. They're fantastic. They're wonderful. You have to know. But I suppose actually when you go, when you remove my immediate circle from me uh, and I was, if I was to talk to people a bit beyond that, that actually does make sense that perhaps people wouldn't be aware of this tiny kind of little animal that is completely removed from anything that they're used to or maybe they haven't seen or just maybe haven't had the opportunity to watch the documentaries about them or look at the visit the zoos and see them um yeah that's that's really interesting um i want is it kind of how do you how do you deal with that how when somebody how do you kind of get around that issue of being is it kind of the does it I, i don't know how to phrase it how do you get around that issue that kind of yeah of of not people not knowing well, it's funny. This is another anecdotal story, but I had a, a call with someone from Facebook a couple of years ago, and um, I assumed they knew about, I mean, they worked for Facebook, right? I assume they knew about Red Pandas. I mean, <laughs> Red, Red Panda videos are pretty popular on Facebook, and uh, they hadn't. And I mean, I was, I thought they were kidding at first, and, and then I realized they weren't. And um, it was just kind of a, a reminder of, yeah, that, and, and you, you, you said it, you know, exactly right. Where when we're around our friends and in our community, um, you know, we, we tend to be around people that know some of the same, have some of the shared interests, obviously. Um, obviously you work at a zoo. I work for a conservation organization. So a lot of the people I come in contact do know about red pandas. Um, I mean, honestly, a lot of, a lot of the people who are, I, you know, I didn't meet through, through this, this work, they learned about red pandas maybe through me or, you know, something like that. So, mm-hmm. so a lot of the people outside of our, our bubbles and our, and our networks, um, you know, unless they've been to a zoo that has red pandas and a lot of zoos don't have red pandas, um, they just might not have, you know, um, and, and maybe they just, you know, haven't seen videos on them and stuff. So, you know, obviously the internet is vast and um, yeah, I, I, it's, it's interesting when I come in contact with someone who hasn't uh, heard of red pandas, but it's also fun to be able to tell them about them. So it's like, well, you've never heard about red pandas. Okay. Well like get ready, you know Um, you know, and then obviously I, you know, bust out some photos and videos and um, yeah. And and so it's fun. And, and, uh, and also it's a reminder that, you know, we still have a lot of work to do. We, there's still a lot of um, people we need to reach. Um, So yeah, it's 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 sort of uh, it's a lot of different feelings. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, it's it's one of those things that there's it's it's quite good because you'll have there's hundreds of thousands of millions of people out there for you to share your passion and your interest with. It's just you want to have shared it all with them right now so they can be working to help you kind of protect with whether that be kind of donating or whatever it is that you are wanting them to do. It's it's kind of yeah tricky to. Yes, I suppose that's a, it's a difficult thing to weigh up in your mind, the positives and the, the, the negatives or the confusing things there. Um, mm-hmm. I wondered kind of how do you, this might again be a kind of silly question, but I suppose when you're talking to these people who've never um, kind of they maybe don't know about red pandas, you're trying to advertise these animals as these kind of interesting things. 
I wondered kind of from your experience of being the development manager, do you have, this is more of a personal interest question. Maybe the listeners will find it interesting. I don't know. Um, but do you find that it's more effective to go in with the kind of look how amazing, cute, interesting these animals are? Or do you go in with the kind of conservation message first of like, these are threatened, we need to protect them. Or do they kind of come in at the same time? What is the kind of approach that you take to something like that? So, I mean, one of the the ways we like to convey the the red panda message, if you will, mm-hmm. is by saying they're uh, unique, important, and endangered. So, um, you know, unique is first. So this is why, you know, like this is, let me introduce you to red pandas. Uh, mm-hmm. This is the unique features. Um, this is, you know, who they are, you know, what they do. And then, we, you know, then we flow into important. Um, this is why they're critical to their ecosystem and their ecosystem, you know, the, the Himalayan um, uh, ecoregion that they're a flagship species of is um, very important to global conservation. I mean, it's, it's really, it's really big, it, you know, it encompasses a lot of area, a lot of species, a lot of endangered and a lot of um, unique um, and vulnerable species. And it's also a very important, important place for people. There's a lot of people that live there, a lot of people that depend on the ecosystems um, for their livelihoods. And so they are an extremely important, um, you know, flagship uh, indicator species, and they're also an umbrella species. So they're really important species to this really important area. So it's, you know, like important times too. Um, (laughs) So, and then from there flows to, oh, and by the way, there are also maybe as few as 2,500 left in the world. Um, or in the wild. Um, mm-hmm. so, and, and that usually will, um, you know, get a reaction because that's a shockingly no, low number. I, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, there are estimates that, that put them as high as 10,000. So it's somewhere between 2,500 to 10,000, which, I mean, if you think about that, um, either way, it's not, it's, it's not many. So, um, yeah, that's, mm-hmm. That's usually how I like to um, introduce red pandas to people, and you know, in sort of that order. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's it's it makes sense because it kind of it gets them in love, and then you kind of hit them with the kind of they're important, they're fantastic, they're unique, they're special, but also we need to act now. And it's interesting exactly. knowing that kind of estimate as well. I think it's especially if you put it in context of animals that people always consider to be endangered. If you were to th- if we're to throw it back to kind of the giant panda that we were talking about a while ago. There's, I think, 1,800 of them, and they are always talked about in the news. They're the flagship species for WWF and all these things of kind of these, look at this, look how endangered, and we need to save the giant panda. And then you consider this animal that maybe isn't talked about as much, that, hang on, they're just as a problem, just have just as many problems, and there is just as few of them. That kind of probably connects quite well with people, and it gives them some perspective of, yeah, what how important it is to act now to protect them. Yeah, exactly. And, and, I like that you brought up giant pandas again, because, you know, I think, you know, a lot, a lot of the time when it comes to conservation, it, it can feel pretty disheartening, right? Like, I mean, a lot of times we're talking about how few of this species there are and, and what, what's threatening this species. And, and, and with the giant pandas, you know, they're no longer an endangered species. And, and growing up, I always knew them as an endangered species. I mean, you know, like you said, they were, they're the, the symbol of one of the biggest conservation groups out there. And they're no longer listed as endangered. So, you know, I also like to tell people like, look, I mean, you know, worst case scenario, there might be as few as 2,500 red pandas, but there was a, there was a time when it wasn't looking so good for giant pandas either. And look how far we've come with them. So, you know, let's use that as inspiration, as guidance to find the same success with red pandas. Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. And I think it's, I was recently speaking to Deborah Tabart of the Australian Koala Foundation. And I think they have a similar, a similar in that the good thing about red pandas and selling them to people is with some species like elephants or tigers or whatever it is, there's this conflict that can occur between uh, these kind of larger species and people. Whereas with the red pandas, not like you kind of have the comparison there of the giant pandas to go look at the success. Um, but then you also don't have the the negatives, which can sometimes come along with conservation, which is there's less likely to be this kind of conflict, I suppose, between them, them and people. They're kind of, or something that can be saved and can be used as a flagship to preserve lots of other species because they are 
so kind of, I don't want to say, they just kind of will keep themselves to themselves, almost. They're kind of, yeah, they're kind of off doing their own thing. Yeah, the situation with Red Pandas is 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 also unique, um, you know, where you, you mentioned elephants and, and tigers and and obviously, yeah, they're more obviously a larger species. Um, one of those is a is a, a predator, which obviously mm-hmm. adds another level of complication, especially, um, you know, when it comes to human wildlife conflict, uh, which is something mm-hmm. you mentioned as well. Um, uh, side sort of fun fact, red pandas are actually classified as a carnivore as well. Um, which is a little counterintuitive since they, you know, 95% of their diet is not meat. Um, and well, actually probably more than that is not meat, but 95% of their diet is bamboo. Um, and then they'll eat berries and, and other things. Um, and every once in a while they'll eat like a, you know, an egg or parent. I mean, I've never actually heard of it happening, but apparently they'll eat a bird. Um, I mean, I think they could catch one. They actually can move really fast when they need to. Um, mm-hmm. but anyway, um, yeah, so. The sort of unique situation with the red pandas is that they're they're a smaller animal and they're not a threat to people. Um, what's interesting is is local farmers and um, herders used to used to uh, fear that they would hunt their livestock, uh, you know, because they didn't really they didn't really know anything about them. You know, they, they would see them sometimes, but they wouldn't really know anything about them. Uh, you know, what they ate and what what they were um, doing. So they uh, w- would fear that they would, would hunt their livestock. But essentially the, the, the conflict kind of s- comes into just people hunting them, thinking that they might be worth something. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, my, they see their tails, they see their, you know, their pretty coat, and they think that they might be able to sell them in a local market and, and raise money because, um, you know, the, the main sort of driver of, a lot of these threats to red pandas is poverty. And so, you know, one of our, one of our, um, we, we emphasize sustainable livelihood and alternative income programs because, you know, until we sort of mitigate poverty in, in their, uh, range areas, it's going to be really difficult to save red pandas. So, you know, that, that's sort of their version of human wildlife conflict. And what's what's interesting too is when it comes to poaching, which, like I mentioned, is is a, is a rising threat to red pandas. They, you know, people will hunt them and everything, but then there's sort of like a what, what's called a fake market for them. So there isn't actually a demand for their tails and their pelts the way that poachers believe that there is. So they'll, you know, go to sell them and they'll only make like, and they essentially will only make like a. a us dollar for their pelt which obviously isn't very much for the risk of killing a red panda of killing a you know protected and an endangered species so there's kind of this fake market sort of driving uh poaching so it's kind of a it's a it's again a unique situation it's sort of a complicated situation that's that's really interesting like it's it's not something i'd heard of before because you would assume you would hunt and go look for things that you can then sell at high value because there is a high demand. I, I had no idea about the kind of hunting for kind of almost to create the demand because if you're kind of like, it just seems counterintuitive. But I can see how, yes, it is important to emphasize the kind of supporting the people round about the habitats, the projects that do that, because then you can protect and then there's less need and then there's kind of less need for them to go out and kind of find these animals, which in the end aren't going to make them any money and help them really anyway it's it's yeah. a complicated cycle yeah it is yeah and i mean it is complicated but it also is simple when you think about it that our uh, country director in nepal angpuri sherpa he has a, a saying that i like i like to mention whenever i can which is conservation cannot ha- happen on an empty stomach and uh it's something that i really use as motivation because you know, I've been with I've been with RPN since about 2013, and the more work I do with them, just the more I see proof of that, and just the urgency of being able to support these local people, because if they're struggling to to you know meet their basic needs to support themselves and their families, I mean, it's really hard to ask people to you know make sacrifices and and do these extra things and um, you know sort of complicate their lives anymore in order to, to preserve this species or preserve the environment. Um, it's only really when they, 
you know, are, are able to feed themselves and clothe themselves and, and support themselves, can we, you know, support them in, in conserving local wildlife? Uh, so while it, it is a complicated situation, which with any species, when it comes to human wildlife conflict and, um, and preservation is, uh, with her pandas, sometimes it feels like it is a little bit more complicated and unique, but, um, it really can be simplified and broken down when we just think like, you know, we need to provide as much support for these people in sustainable ways in order to conserve the species. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yes, I think that's, yeah, it's a really good thing to hear, especially from kind of uh, a charity that isn't that you have offices outside of the area. Cause I think there's sometimes this tendency for people who aren't necessarily in the places where these things are happening to think we just need to solve the problems. We just need to kind of do it. We need to do this, but then without taking into account necessarily what's happening in the place where the animal or the plant or whatever it is they want to conserve is. So it's really good to hear kind of a perspective of, oh, we've thought about this. We've thought this all the way through. Um, and there is kind of um, people there working on it. We're kind of supporting and building up these these things. Because yes, I completely agree. Um, speaking to kind of people from Lemur Conser- the Lemur Conservation Network and things about the kind of the work in Madagascar that's going on. It's, I think, a similar story of the, you can't conserve a reef or you can't conserve lemurs if the people who live on the site by the shore near the reef or live on the edge of the forest are starving because they're going to do what they, you have to support them and you have to help protect them. Um, and ultimately, it might not be, I think a lot of people have this vision of conservation maybe when they're younger that, oh, you're going to go out into the forest and you're going to save the animals. But in fact, it's a lot more complicated than that. And you have to, there is a whole kind of circle and kind of cycle that goes on around about um, um, and it just goes to show, I suppose, how connected we are with nature. As much as we sometimes like to think necessarily we're not humans aren't animals or aren't connected to nature in any way, we're we're above it. Some people may say uh, or may think actually there there is important links that we have to to solve and to kind of keep developing to kind of help um, all of the animals and all of the plants. Yeah, definitely. And and a sort of unambiguous example of this is I mentioned poaching, and, and obviously. You know, poaching, poachers are often seen as, you know, they're, they're sort of villainized, which mm-hmm. kind of makes sense. Obviously, it's it's very easy to be angry at poachers. But like we mentioned, what essentially drives poaching, in especially in these areas, is poverty. And a lot of these mm-hmm. people don't want to be poachers because there's a lot of risk of being a poacher. Um, it's dangerous and it's also mm-hmm. risky as far as you can, you know, you can be punished legally for it. And mm-hmm. um, so one of one of the ways that we intervene on on this rise in poaching is we actually will sometimes hire uh, former poachers or you know people who don't want to poach anymore and they're literally only doing it just um, to support themselves and their, their families and hire them as what we call forest guardians so they actually begin earning income for doing uh, the exact opposite of what they're doing bef- before essentially um, with you know, more sustainable um, revenue and with, you know, far less risk. So that's sort of an example of, of a community-based program that is, you know, intervening on a, an urgent situation in a way that is supporting local people and helping to, you know, alleviate poverty. That's fantastic. That is, it's, it's really interesting to hear about and good to hear about. And I suppose kind of links really kind of well into my next question, which was actually, I wanted to ask about some of the biggest success stories maybe you'd seen at your time. And kind of, we talk a lot about threats on the show and all of these things and how we solve them. But, so, and sometimes that conversation, I think we've managed to keep it pretty positive and solutions based almost in this conversation, but sometimes it can go downhill and kind of be a bit of a dark dark corridor to go down. Uh, so I always like to bring it back and talk about success stories. Um, And I wanted to know, even though we've kept it pretty light and pretty we've talked about a lot of success so far what are some of the biggest success stories that you've seen at your time with the the red panda network yeah i've seen a lot um i mean one of the cooler stories is um of a lady in eastern eastern nepal who so essentially to give some context a lot of the people who live in red panda habitat at least in nepal they rely on what are called traditional stoves. So these are often mud or brick uh, stoves. And honestly, sometimes they're just kind of pits in their home uh, that they use for cooking and heating. And th- there's a lot of adverse 
um, sort of consequences f- for using these stoves. And, you know, that includes, uh, you know, increased habitat loss. So they, they rely on uh, more uh, fuel wood than um, is sustainable. And so they require more f- fuel wood. And then they also release uh, pollution. And because they're indoors, you know, they're, they're in these people's homes, they uh, create, you know, indoor smoke that is very harmful for people. So one of our programs is it's our improved cooking stove program. Um, and we distribute them to local people. And these are uh, fuel efficient and they're metal stoves that they uh, essentially, they release no pollution. So they have, ch- they actually have chimneys. So all the smoke goes outdoors and they, uh, they reduce uh, fuel wood usage by like 50%. So they, um, and there's a, I was writing an article for a website for our, our blog um, on a lead, a lady named Nima who, you know, she, she had, she spoke of how much these stoves hindered her and her family's life um, with, you know, with how much time they would have to spend gathering um, fuel wood and also just the effects of the smoke and how it was, you know, really um, harming their health and just sort of her testimony of how much their lives instantly changed once they, they got these um, new stoves, uh, you know, and, and how much more free time they had to do other things, um, which is something we don't think about, too, is, you know, when when you're you're sort of forest dependent, which the, these communities often are, you spend so much of your time out gathering resources that you need to survive. And, um, you know, something like a, a fuel efficient stove just changes that and provides all this time to do, you know, spend more time with your family, do other important things that can really help your livelihood. And and also they just felt better. You know, they 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 weren't breathing in the smoke all the time. And I, 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 I just I got really emotional um, when I was writing that article. And uh, and then I'll, I'll provide another example, too. Uh, you know, I mentioned our forest guardian program. And just seeing how that has impacted local communities is is really remarkable. I mean, it's it's a lot of our a lot of the people who are involved with Red Panda Network. It's one of our favorite programs, and it's probably one of our most popular programs. Um, but there is a forest guardian named Manuka who became pretty uh, popular among our um, audience because of a film called The Firefox Guardian. And if you haven't seen that film, I highly recommend it. It's by it's um, from a filmmaker named uh, Gunjan Manon, and she's a just outstanding filmmaker. And uh, it's essentially about this lady named Manuka, who's a forest guardian, and her story of of going from you know very oppressed and just marginalized to becoming a woman who is gaining you know financial independence, who um, is gaining confidence, who is able to be more involved in, you know, in community decision-making, which women in, in a lot of these rural communities aren't. And, um, and just how much her life was limited, uh, you know, opportunities just were scarce. And uh, just by becoming involved as a forest guardian, how that changed everything. And, um, you know, one of, one of our priorities right now is recruiting more women into our conservation work and, you know, specifically our forest guardian program, because we are seeing that um, it really can be life changing for these women who, um, you know, oftentimes they, they face just prevalent cultural barriers that kind of keep them, you know, sort of stuck at just, you know, child rearing and sort of, um, you know, household chores sort of roles. So, so those, those stories stand out and there's, you know, there's, there's many others. I mean, we're, we're very community involved and all of our programs, as I mentioned, are community based. So um, all of our programs start with the people and they benefit the people and they, you know, in, um, and they involve the people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, that's really interesting. And the thing that kind of came to mind while you were talking about the kind of empowerment of women and kind of in these communities was the success of the um the black mambas in south africa and i suppose it's kind of a mirror kind of image of kind of the this conservation group of women who are extremely successful extremely good at what they do extremely kind of independent and kind of 
yes, our, our, our admired worldwide. And hope, hopefully you'll be able to kind of have that same kind of, well, you've had one fantastic case study. Uh, hopefully even more will, will follow um, for your work. Yeah. The, in the future that's fantastic it's fantastic that's cool you you brought up black mamas because I, I haven't heard about that i'll have to look it up but uh i i i love snakes um and one of the one of the real quick one of the unique things about rapanda is also is they uh can actually sort of smell with their tongues kind of like snakes so that's another unique thing about the animal <laughs> <laughs> that's a very bizarre that's really interesting yeah i did not yeah. that's that's odd but fascinating <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they're just this is the thing i feel like after you've done listening to this episode um listeners go away and keep googling and reading books and reading because th- you're just going to find out more and more probably bizarre but wonderful things about this animal that maybe you had underestimated or not even heard of or whatever it is it's fantastic that's absolutely fantastic um and that kind of is is bringing us almost to the end. I suppose we've kind of talked about all these successes. We've talked about kind of the red panda. And I think we've probably got a lot of people interested in doing something or kind of wanting to spread the word about them. And I wondered kind of getting towards the end of the interview. So a question I always like to ask my guests is if someone is inspired by the red panda or anything that you've said today about conservation in your work, what should they do? What should these what should members of the general public who maybe aren't in the places where red pandas are found, what should they be doing to, to help support red panda conservation? Yeah, great question. So, I mean, not to be too predictable or cliche, but our website is a great place to start. You know, we our, our sort of goal was to create this all-in-one-stop hub of information and resources uh, for people to get involved and to help others get involved. Because, you know, like we, like we were talking about before, they are an animal that's still needs some public attention they you know still aren't getting sort of the engagement that they need in order for us to really win this battle you know or to to save this species so um you know check out our website and and tell your friends tell i mean this movie that's coming out i think is gonna help spread the word but it's important to make sure that we're you know sharing uh, responsible messaging so obviously we need to um, make sure that we're not sharing how, you know, great of a pet this animal would be because, you know, while there may not be a demand, the demand that, you know, was previously thought of, of for their, their tails and their, their hides, uh, they, there is a demand for them as pets, unfortunately. So there, there is a black market pet trade for a panda. So, you know, we want to, and we, we emphasize this on our website, you know, make sure you're telling people how, how awesome red pandas are, how much they need our help. Um, but they, you know, are a wild animal that, that should remain in the wild. Um, and they're, they're, they shouldn't be taken and, and, and sold as pets. So, yeah. So I'd say our website is a, a great place to start. That's fantastic. And I think I'll put links to all of that in the kind of description of the episode so people can go click right down there and kind of find it so easily. I'll do all the work for you. You guys just need to go out and click the link um, and go and do some reading about it. And yes, I really like the point about the the kind of pet trade that you've made there because yes, it's one of those things after Finding Nemo and Finding Dory and all of these films come out who base themselves around an animal. It, yes, it raises awareness of that animal and people fall in love with it. But it can have a lot of side effects that are perhaps unexpected as well um, of kind of things about pet trade and all sorts of, yes, negative connotations. So, yeah, being responsible in that way is excellent, excellent advice and sharing responsible things. I'm going to have to watch this film now. I was intrigued. Now I'm going to have to watch it and see because I feel like there may be questions come in um, about it. Yeah. What's interesting about the film is like, I mean, it's sort of a... A, a girl who when she gets um, excited or upset, she becomes this red panda, which is funny to me because red pandas are very mellow. You know, they're, they're even lethargic uh, some of the time. I mean, you know, they, their, their diet is bamboo. I mean, how much energy can you get from a, from bamboo? So <laughs> um, yeah. So it's, it, it looks like an interesting film. I'm, I'm excited to watch it as well. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Um, and I, I didn't realize it came out so soon. So I will be one. <laughs> it's fantastic. Um, but that is that's brilliant. That kind of, um, I guess, brings us to, towards the end. We've highlighted your website. Is there anything else, any last minute things that you wanted to highlight for um, listeners, any social media or whatever it is that, that you'd like them to go and visit? Or is the website the main port of call? 
Yeah, and our social media, you know, we have social media uh, accounts on all, all channels, and it's easy to find us. We're at Red Panda Network, all of them. Um, and one sort of side mention is that it's our uh, 15-year anniversary. So we've been an organization uh, for 15 years, and so that's what we're celebrating this year. So yeah, come check out our website, and uh, hopefully you can celebrate with us. Perfect. Perfect. Yes, I will be. Um, and I'll make sure to funnel as many people that way as I can as well. Um, but yes, that brings us to end. And so I just want to say kind of a massive thank you, Terence. That's been really, really interesting and fantastic. Um, and I've learned a lot. So hopefully the, the listeners have as well. Um, and we'll be off spreading this message to, to everyone. Um, yes. So thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you, Jack. This has been really fun and really appreciate what you're doing. I love pangolins too. Uh, speaking of a unique species, I mean, wow, they are a very unique species. Uh, yeah, so keep doing what you're doing. It's really great. Thank you so, so much. Um, and yes, for all the listeners out there, thank you all for listening as well. Um, that brings us to the end of another episode, but this is not the end of the discussion um, of red pandas. I will be back next week with Sonam, who's based in Nepal, to talk all about his work and kind of the work that's going on there, kind of in situ that the Red Panda Network is doing. So make sure to tune back in for that. You can also find us on social media. We're on um, all of them, LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at Pangolin Podcast. So you can just find us on there. You can also subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on the Red Panda episode that's coming up next week as well, or any future episodes after that. We've got some excellent guests coming up very, very soon, uh, which I'm very excited about. So uh, make sure and subscribe so you don't miss out on any of that. Um, But with all that said, that brings us to the end of the episode. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you, Terence, once again for all of your insights. And yes, until next time, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>